first let me just do a sound check. How's the sound in the back? Pretty good? Okay, thank you. So I'm quite inspired to be here. I can feel the deep practice energy in the hall every time I walk in. It may not feel like that inside for you, but it's very uh, still in this room. And I notice that there's a new Buddha Rupa, which I like also. And I remember also that the first time I came here to sit the three-month retreat, there was the usual array of five or six teachers up at the front, and there was a teacher assistant, and it was Winnie. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a bit of a sense, this is a long time ago, (laughs) so there's a sense of the tradition continuing on here. And I also feel the, uh, the strength and the clarity of the teachings that are being given here. So the clear pointing to the truth of how things are and the explicit acknowledgement of the possibility of awakening. So there are these two feelings. There's the heart opening and the devotion and there's the crisp, crystal clear wisdom of the Dharma. And for me, both of these feel bright and alive at this retreat. And we could ask, are they even really different? So the talk tonight is around this territory. When the Buddha was guiding people, one way that he guided them was pointing toward the particular qualities of mind that are useful on the path. And some of them are more in this realm that we might call the heart, and some are more in the mind. And it's true that, you know, in ancient India there wasn't as much differentiation. They weren't as separate as we hold them here in uh, modern Western understanding. But Even there, there was an idea that there needs to be a balance between these different aspects. And one of the groups of qualities that the Buddha pointed to was called the five spiritual faculties. And these are qualities that act, they act like leaders in the mind. They're kind of organizing qualities that help direct our energies. You may have noticed on this retreat that the mind and the body have a lot of different energies, also known as things coming up. Um, And they're not always so organized, right? So they're like a crowd of people milling around sometimes. And this is okay, um, but the mind does benefit from a little bit of leadership. And so the... (laughs) The Buddha named these five leaders, these five spiritual faculties. And they're called the the Indriya in Pali. And they're named after Indra, the leader of the devas, the gods. 
So I'll, I'll start by uh, naming, just naming all of them. Uh, and I like to give the Pali because that's how the Buddha named them. But then I'll offer the various uh, translations that are used most commonly. So the first of the faculties is sadha, and that is usually translated as faith, but it can also be confidence or trust. One teacher even uses conviction. And then the second is uh, virya, energy, and then sati, mindfulness, samadhi, Usually concentration, but sometimes we would say unification of mind, collectedness or composure of the mind. And then the fifth faculty is panya, wisdom or discernment. And we're not going to actually talk about all five of them tonight. I know Bhante talked about all five of the hindrances, but... I'm not Bonte, and so we're just going to focus on, you know, we're going to focus on two of them so that we can really look in some detail. And they're going to be the first and the last. Um, So let me immediately give some caveats around this first one, uh, sadha. So there's no single English word that really captures the whole nuance or range of this first faculty. Usually, like I said, we'll see faith, but I'll immediately say that when I began practice, I did not like the word faith. That was not for me. My education was in science, and my upbringing uh, didn't include very much in the way of religion, so I didn't really have a, a strong or good association with that word. Now I like the word, uh, so things do change. But you are very welcome to choose whichever word works for you. Um, Trust, confidence, conviction, faith. I'll probably say several of them during this talk. And I'll be talking in more detail about this quality in a moment. I want to say a little bit about the faculties in general. So these are qualities that come into play when we are learning a skill And we've all learned many skills in our lives. Maybe you've learned a sport or an art or a craft or a language. We've all had to learn a lot of things. You probably had to learn how to do the dishwasher, you know, if that's your yogi job. But um, so in some sense, when, you know, when we're learning things, we have to have some sense of confidence, some kind of put in some kind of effort, be aware of what we're doing. Uh, gather our mind around it and eventually gain some experience. Uh, but these wouldn't be called spiritual faculties necessarily in that case. They become spiritual faculties when they're placed in the service of cultivating the heart and the mind toward awakening. That's when these qualities uh, become the indriya that the Buddha was talking about. And as we develop on the path, these five can become very powerful. Uh, The Buddha even said that our development of the faculties is related to how far we can go on the path. And so, you know, it's important to keep developing them in order to keep progressing. So, these five, faith, energy, 
mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, they can be seen as a progression. That's a valid way to see it. The order of them is not arbitrary, that it begins with faith, and then there's some cultivating of the mind, and then we end up with wisdom. Um, But that is kind of a linear model, and they actually aren't all that linear in how they come about and arise and develop So another image that's given, this one in the commentaries, is that of a chariot that's drawn by five horses. And the way the horses are arranged is that the lead horse is mindfulness out in the front, and then there are two pairs of horses behind that. And one pair is faith and wisdom, and one pair is energy and concentration. So the horse image gives us the understanding that teamwork is important with the faculties. If one pair of horses, if one of them is strong and fast, and the other one is tired or weak and just kind of plodding along, then the chariot is not going to go very smoothly. So we need some balance, some harmony um, between the paired horses and also within the faculties as a whole. This is interesting, right? Because all of the five faculties are wholesome. No doubt that they're all beautiful qualities of the mind, beautiful um, qualities that help our path. But it's possible that even wholesome states, even wholesome qualities can at times get out of balance. Jill actually mentioned this in relation to the Brahma Viharas on Sunday, uh, the way that They're all very wholesome and skillful, but there are times when they can be out of balance and it's helpful to have more than one of them together so that they can come into harmony. This is one more thing that mindfulness can be aware of. It can be aware of the balance of the conditions that are in the mind at any given time. So we have these pairs. And the two qualities in the pairs are related. So faith and wisdom are related and energy and concentration are related. And today we're going to focus on this faith and wisdom pair, sata and panya. Maybe you're surprised that they're related. Um, So we'll have to see how that's the case. These pairs have a relationship that has been described by Bhikkhu Bodhi as Mutually restraining, mutually enhancing. And I find that to be an interesting phrase. It's been useful in my own practice. So we'll explore that a bit. So mutually restraining. I'm sorry about that word, restraining. That doesn't work for everyone. Um, But it relates to this idea of balance. So maybe we could say mutually balancing. And then mutually enhancing is about how the faculties can get into a resonance when they are balanced, such that they strengthen together. And that's important for developing them. So let's look at how this works for this faith, confidence, and trust, which is more on the heart side, and wisdom, which is more on the mind side, if you will.
So starting with sadha, remember that I gave some caveats about this word. Um, It doesn't mean, for example, it doesn't mean blind belief. It doesn't mean throwing ourselves at something without any consideration. And it doesn't mean not questioning. Uh, In the suttas, there is some specific phrasing around this quality that is that goes like this a noble disciple places faith in the awakening of the tathagata that's the buddha so that's kind of the definition is that they the wording is important there um, placing faith in the awakening of the tathagata so it means that we have some trust some inner sense that yes a human being can awaken so that's kind of the the groundwork but the, you know faith can be very down to earth this this sense of possibility can be very down to earth the first time i went to a local sangha to sit with a group what i noticed when i came in is that the experienced practitioners in the group they all seemed to be very comfortable with themselves and at that time i was really not comfortable with myself so that's what i noticed and my mind said something like i want what they've got <laughs> i don't know exactly what it is but i want that <laughs> so you know it didn't have to be very clear or specific um but you know that's a basic kind of inspiration or faith maybe you felt something like that so if we look more broadly though this is a quality with a lot of different facets and there in the text there are three components or aspects of sadha that are mentioned one of them is cognitive are you surprised so we might call this trust or confidence there is a kind of mental understanding behind what the buddha called sadha and part of trusting something is that it makes sense at some level so this would include like giving some weight to the word of people that we respect so for example if you respect the dalai lama then maybe because of that there would be some willingness to listen to what he has to say some willingness to think well maybe there's something to that now that's a, that's a basic aspect of of trust or confidence having confidence in something it also could include being willing to provisionally believe things that we don't experientially know yet based on having some limited prior experience so for example I have not been able yet to personally verify absolutely everything that the Buddha talks about in the suttas. <laughs> right? So, but what I have been able to experience is in line with the teachings that are there. So, I find that I have some willingness to accept that things that I haven't verified yet might also be true. 
So then the second aspect of faith is devotional or emotional, the heart feeling of resonance with something. It can be quite embodied, you know, kind of an energetic feeling. It's definitely not cognitive. And it doesn't have to make sense in the way that modern Western culture tends to demand of us. So this would include, you know, this devotional aspect would include a feeling of reverence uh, or a heartfelt connection to something bigger than ourself. It also includes the intuitive realm, you know, an intuitive sense that practice is beneficial for us, that we can't quite describe exactly, but we just, we just know. So the devotional aspect has something to do with how we feel. When I went to practice in Sri Lanka, I was practicing at a retreat center there for lay people, and, but it was right uh, next to a monastery, and every day the monks and the occasional nun would go by uh, on the way to their, you know, on their alms round, on the way to get food. And there was kind of a little tradition, I guess it was like a break from the morning meditation. We would all kind of go and stand at the side of the pathway where the monastics were going to be walking by. And it was so fun to watch the Sri Lankan yogis. Um, they were just beaming, you know, to see these monastics go by. There's this, this real heartfelt sense of devotional practice that you don't see quite as much in the West here. I found it very inspiring. They were just so happy to see the monastics going by on their alms round. And then the third aspect of faith is motivational. So we might call this something like inspiration that can lead to action. At a very simple level, it could just be some kind of willingness. But at a stronger level, it actually means being inspired to act. Um, So sadha can be a verb as well. It's not just a noun. When I first came on the three-month retreat, it was something of a leap of faith. I remember thinking, I'm going to sit for how long? But something in my heart knew. You know, yes, this is it. I'm going to come and do this. So this motivational side could include taking refuge, like we did this morning. Out in our daily life, it could include committing to sit every day. It includes letting go of our ordinary life in order to come on a long retreat. For some, um, ordaining is an active expression of faith. So these three, cognitive and devotional and motivational, they can't really be clearly separated. They're really just different aspects of this how this faculty of faith can operate in the mind. And they come together, maybe, in a a phrase that captures the linguistic roots of the word sadha. We could say, to place the heart upon. So this quality is to place the heart upon. Where do you place your heart? So it is possible for faith to get out of balance in the mind. 
And when that happens, we might become overly devoted, overly trusting. And what, what usually happens at this time is that we're not seeing quite clearly. And it's possible to go down a blind alley or a dead end road and then have to go back. And then also there's an understanding in this tradition that um, faith alone might lack the oomph that's needed to actually cut through the hindrances or the defilements by itself. So what, what is helpful is wisdom. Panya, remember the two horses? So wisdom is what sharpens up the faith-filled heart and keeps it on track in a sense. So then let's talk a little bit more now about this, this other horse, wisdom. Wisdom, or panya, like faith, it has many different dimensions and many different manifestations. In general, wisdom is the clear understanding that we have something that we've gained from experience. So it's not an intellectual knowing, It's not something that we heard from somebody else. We do have to hear the Dharma from others, and that is a kind of wisdom. We have to learn something about the teachings. And it can be helpful to reflect a little bit on the teachings and consider how they would apply to our life. That's another kind of wisdom. But eventually, we're moving to this experiential wisdom that comes from cultivating our practice. And at the deeper levels, wisdom functions as a direct seeing, as an insightful seeing that can penetrate through our karmic habits and our mental obscurations. When he said the other night that Wisdom is what accomplishes waking up. So how does, how does wisdom manifest? We said it was a kind of understanding. But what is understood? So the Buddha spoke of several different ways that wisdom manifests from meditation practice. And there is one that is especially predominant. When a definition of wisdom is given, most often it is defined as seeing, arising, and passing away. So this is an an example of a phrase that's repeated many times throughout the suttas. Here a noble disciple is wise. They possess wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. So the Buddha named seeing change, understanding how things arise and pass away, as a key, wise understanding. It's not just knowing about it intellectually. I think we all know intellectually that things change. Uh, But it's really knowing it in our bones, in our heart. In the suttas, when people wake up, they reach stream entry, the first stage of awakening, most often what they say, if they say anything, (laughs) is, 
all that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. Yang kinchi samudaya dhammang sabang tang niroda dhammang Whatever is of the nature to arise, all that is of the nature to cease. So it's a powerful statement about impermanence or anicca. And awakening is to know that everything that arises also passes away. Everything. So for, for completeness, though, I will add that wisdom is named in many other ways. It's also named quite frequently as the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the understanding of karma, and seeing what are called the three characteristics, impermanence, which we've already talked about being the first one, and then the others of unsatisfactoriness and not-self. And I'm certain that these are going to come up again. But seeing change, understanding arising and passing is... It's quite fundamental for wisdom to grow in this practice. But despite the, you know, the very well-deserved praise and raising up of wisdom as the key quality, wisdom too can get out of balance. And what does that look like? So a mind that has wisdom out of balance can get clever and skeptical. It thinks it already knows. As soon as something comes up, the mind classifies it as part of some list. Or it just dismisses it. Yeah, I've seen that one already. There's an over-reliance on the wisdom function of discerning, dividing, classifying. The mind can become brittle, sharp, cold, not very joyful. It loses touch with inspiration, with devotion, with the heart. Wisdom is most powerful when it's rooted in the heart. We're going to need our whole heart to wake up. So this is an encouragement not to forget your deep inspiration and aspiration in the Dharma. So remember this phrase that we're working with, mutually balancing, mutually enhancing. So harmony and balance and resonance. So if we find that there's too much of one factor, we don't want to reduce that one, (laughs) okay? We want to increase the partner. (laughs) So, you know, if you think you have too much wisdom, don't try to reduce that. Um, We want all of our horses to be strong so that they can pull our Dharma chariot. So if you feel that your mind has gotten a bit overly clever and skeptical and your practice is feeling dry or joyless, it would be good to enhance sadha, faith or devotion or trust And I get that people have different temperaments and, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea to be more in that realm. 
But if this feels foreign to you, um, one thing to consider is that one of the proximate causes that's named for faith is dukkha. Why is that? Well, there's a sense that when we are in contact with suffering, with what's challenging, with what's hard to bear, there's a way the mind can turn. It meets that and it turns and it remembers, oh yeah, I could be reactive, I could just spin out, I could meet this suffering with ignorance, essentially. Or there might be another way. And that little phrase, there might be another way, is a little glimmer of faith. There might be another way. And that's practice. So that's our initial little inspiration. So in some way, all of us have gone through this. We've encountered the dukkha in some way and had enough faith to begin practicing. But we may need something more specific here on on retreat. So you could try, for example, um, looking at the Buddha here before you close your eyes for meditation or after you open them afterwards. Some people find that very grounding just to look at the altar perhaps taking refuge like we did this morning. Perhaps you'd like to try volunteering to offer the meal to Bonte, which can bring a very surprisingly beautiful feeling just to do that. Or you could spend a little time feeling in your heart why it is that you practice and reminding yourself not not a lot of words, about that, but the feeling. What's the feeling in your heart about why you practice? Whether you've been here one week or seven weeks, it might be a good time to reconnect with your inspiration in coming here, with what you deeply value about practice, about your path, about the Dharma. And you may find that doing that can bolster your wisdom, actually. gives it that juice, that warmth that can help it grow. On the other hand, if you're drifting along on a cloud of nice devotional feelings, you may wish to sharpen up your mind a bit by increasing panya, wisdom. How might we do that? Well, You could relate your experience to the teachings. So this is the exercise that's offered in the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. So we are asked to see our experience in terms of the hindrances, like Bhante talked about last night, or in terms of the sense bases, like Rebecca talked about, or the factors of awakening, which we're going to get to soon, or the Four Noble Truths. So we can start to use these frameworks uh, to more clearly understand our experience. And we can also look more carefully at arising and passing away. We can notice the changing nature 
of experience. So the balance of faith and wisdom, it comes about by allowing these faculties to come into contact so that they can mutually influence each other and come into equilibrium. Imbalance of the faculties is not really a quantitative manner, matter like a mechanical scale. You know, you've got these balance things and you've got too much weight on one side and so you transfer some from the wisdom side to the faith side and then it comes into balance. It's not like that. I used to think that originally. I had kind of a analytical mind like that. Uh, but it's not really it's not really like that. It's more that when there's imbalance, it's because there's disconnection. You know, there's been an isolation of the different faculties. And so balancing means bringing them together and allowing them to connect and interact like maybe raising a barrier between two fluids and allow and then allowing them to flow together. So we can ask questions like, you know, is is my wisdom rooted in the heart? And is my heartfulness connected to seeing clearly? And is mindfulness the lead horse that notices when there is misalignment and disconnection? So it's not so much something that we need to do willfully. It's more something that will happen on its own if we allow mindfulness to observe the different factors that are happening in the mind. So when faith and wisdom work together, they begin to resonate and mutually grow. So the more confidence that we have in the process of practice, then the more we'll be able to disentangle our mind from old karmic habits and we'll be able to see things as they are. And we'll also be more willing to let go of even our most cherished core habits that we're carrying around. Maybe we'll even be willing to let go of ourself. And each thing that we see clearly and maybe maybe even let go of, that strengthens our confidence in the path and in our practice and in awakening. So you can see that we can get into kind of a virtuous circle of mutual enhancement, of our confidence leading to good practice, which helps us see clearly. And then once we've seen, we realize, oh yeah, that I have even more confidence that this actually works. So it goes around and around. Maybe you have examples from your own practice, even on this retreat. Can any of you think of cases where you've seen this resonance between the trust in the practice and then seeing a result? Yeah, I see a couple of nods. Sometimes you'll hear when talking about the faculties that faith gets replaced 
by wisdom as we walk the path. You know, we start out with, we need faith at the beginning because we don't really know, and then we practice, and then we have wisdom, and we can throw out the faith because we don't need it anymore. And I want to speak to that a little bit because it's not quite accurate, actually. It's not just that wisdom replaces faith. Wisdom transforms faith into something deeper. There's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha is talking about the time just after his full enlightenment. He was sitting there on the banks of the Naranjara River reflecting on the complete eradication of dukkha in his mind. And he had the thought... It is painful to dwell without reverence and deference. And he looked around, wondering where he could offer this. And the word translated there as reverence is agarawo, which has a flavor of something like respect. You know, the, the Buddha didn't need to go for refuge, and he doesn't need faith in the same way that we do. And yet he still wished to offer respect. And so he looked around, and he didn't see any being who was his superior in ethics, meditation, wisdom, or liberation. But he did find an object of devotion in the Dharma. So Dharma, or Dhamma, is another one of these words with multiple meanings. And some translations of this sutta say that dharma refers here to the teachings. But I would suggest that it might, in addition, refer to the laws of nature. That's another meaning of the word dharma. And so even an awakened Buddha feels awe and respect for the lawful functioning of the universe and the mind. I find it quite touching that the Buddha still wished to dwell in reverence and deference. And if it was appropriate for him, it's probably appropriate for us too. <laughs> oh, well, what the heck, I'll read the verse that, uh, that goes in that sutta. So it says, The perfect Buddhas of the past, the Buddhas of the future, and the present Buddha who removes the sorrow of many. All those dwelled, now dwell, and in the future will dwell, revering the good Dhamma. This is the nature of the Buddhas. Therefore, one desiring the good, aspiring for greatness, should revere the good Dhamma, recollecting the Buddha's teaching. So balancing the five spiritual faculties puts the mind into a place where it can find freedom. So if we back up now to recall the whole list of the five faculties, we have faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And perhaps you feel, as I do, that the love of the Dharma has a warm devotional side, and that that same love includes the brightness of wisdom. You know, they're not so different. So we have faith, 
to place the heart upon. And we have wisdom to see the truth, particularly the truth of impermanence. And they come together quite beautifully to support our path. So we'll close with some words from Sharon Salzberg from her book, Faith. Notice in her words how the placing of the heart combines with the deep wisdom of understanding impermanence. Anything can crumble into dust. No symbol, no construction, no condition, no relationship, no life is immune to change. What can any of us place our faith in that endures? According to Buddhist teachings, to discover that is to know the deepest level of faith. So I wish you very well in cultivating your heart, your mind, your body, all the different factors that come together in harmony and resonance to propel us along the path to freedom. Whether it feels easy or hard at any given time, whether it feels unbalanced or balanced, there's this underlying unity that we can point ourselves toward and allow the mind and the heart to grow. Let's just sit together for a moment. 